Welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And uh, we've just seen The Phantom Thread, the latest film by Paul Thomas Anderson. Is it uh, The Phantom Thread or just Phantom Thread? The Phantom Thread sounds like a Star Wars movie. (laughs) (laughs) No, well, it's down as Phantom Thread, I suppose, so let's just call it Phantom Thread. Mm. Um, I... um, I know my brother has been talking about this for a while. He's seen it a couple of times already. Mm. Uh, and he's um, he's uh, quite beguiled by it. And uh, he's keen to come on the podcast and talk about it, which I think is probably a good idea, because quite frankly, I haven't got the foggiest. Really? I'm a little bit nonplussed by it. I love it. I did not love it, I love but I'm it. nonplussed by it. Well, nonplussed kind of implies that it had no effect on you whatsoever, that you kind of endured it. No, that's not true. I didn't endure it. I don't think that's what that implies, but I just, I feel like I'm kind of slightly lost with it. Like, I know I liked it, and I enjoyed kind of living in the world that it was portraying, and I think it's kind of, it, it's, it's got a beautiful mood and a tone, and it flows, and I think the use of music to keep it moving is, is great, and I think the performances are beautiful. Um, but I... Don't know what I can say about it. Um, let, let's let's just briefly say what it's about uh, before we go into spoiler territory. So it's about um, this uh, fashion designer and dressmaker, uh, Reynolds Woodcock, who's played by Danny Day Lewis in what is supposed to be his last uh, role, yes. and he's quitting acting with this one. Um, I don't believe it. Well, we'll see. And. Um, uh, and he uh, he's renowned. He obviously he makes dresses for for kings and queens and all the highest in society. Yes. Um, um, I wondered if it was based on Norman Hartnell no. because really he was the only famous British couturier of that period of you know the the this is like the post war period. It's the fifties, isn't it? That it's set. In. Yeah, it is the fifties. Um, he was the only British competition. To Chanel and Dior and uh, Balenciaga and people like that in the post-war period. Okay, so um, so so uh, Reynolds uh, runs this runs this business with uh, his sister, played by um, Leslie Manville. Was divine. It's fantastic, uh, and um, he he he's a bachelor. He goes to the country to some place in the country that he has, and he meets this waitress, played by Vicky Creeps. I think that's how you pronounce her surname. Yes. Um, and he invites her to dinner, and they and they begin this this relationship where she's kind of half actual romantic relate partner uh, and half muse. Although she she kind of their relationship is uh, not physical early on, mm. but it, it's kind of intellectual and emotional. Yes. In a kind of reserved way, I guess. Um, she she becomes his his kind of central muse yes. in a way. And uh, he invites her to live in his home, which, so the, the business is run out of this kind of stately townhouse in London. Yes. Um, I guess that's as far as you can say with that. I mean, that's really what's set up in the trailers. So before getting into spoiler territory, that's the premise. Yes. I think, um, I think it's important. I mean, the things that struck me in those first scenes was just a, how beautiful Vicky Creeps is. You know, but in this very serene, 
self-possessed, quiet way where, you know, right from the beginning that she's open to anything and she's this match, but actually in this very um, uh, downplayed way, yeah, kind mm -hmm. of, you know, all of the information is kind of conveyed through uh, tiny gestures, really, that uh, are very self-possessed, very self-assured, uh, um, yeah. She has this way of holding her head kind of straight neck, sort of, it's got this almost kind of superior attitude to it, where it's just, it's not like she's looking down on people, but it has this, this kind of very well-mannered sort of attitude to the way she holds herself, which I really like. Yes. She looks like... like uh, a well-brought-up person, basically, like the way people kind of were, like her well-bred. She looks like uh, um, that figure in... Um, uh, uh, the pearl earring. Yeah, go with the pearl earring. They go with the earring, and like in that painting, really. Uh, um, so she she looks like a figure of like Dutch painting or something, like quiet, self possessed, concentrated. Yeah. Mm. Um, and 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 she evokes that. I think she's extraordinarily beautiful. You can see entirely what he sees in her, and actually, you can see completely what she sees in him. Because, you know, one of the lovely things about seeing Daniel Day-Lewis in this film is he's, he's every year his age, yeah? He, but, but he's extraordinarily handsome, I find. Mm. You know, and he's so interesting to look at. Uh, again, it's kind of, it's a performance of small, of small gestures of, you know, the way that he walks, it's slightly kind of pigeon-toed and... and you know, his stillness. And I think there's only about three times where he smiles in the film. And actually, each time he smiles, you know, it evokes like a world, really. It kind of comes across as a major... Yeah, like of... he smiles internally. And, and, and then the, the actual smile on the surface, on his face, is like the tip of the iceberg. Mm. So it, it suggests... It suggests so much more about what he's feeling than it shows. Yes. I, it's, it's the most I've kind of liked him, just on a sort of... Uh, on like a personal level for a very long time, which is not to say that I think... I think we've spoke, probably spoken before a little bit about how you and I both find him a little bit cold sometimes. I think yes. you said the same thing about Gary Oldman, the idea of them being... The, the idea of their performances being mannered and and um, you, you sort of notice details. But I think... Um, I think he comes with this reputation, Daniel Lewis, as being, like, one of the greats. And so you are... before Even before you watch him, it's like you are being tuned in to, to notice that. And then the fact that you notice it, you go, well, I noticed it. Like, yeah. It was your fault in a way that you noticed it. No, but he is a distant actor, actually. I, I do think that, you know, there are people who you just warm to and love. Like, it's very unfashionable to say this now, I suppose, you know, but for example, people like Mel Gibson in his prime always cheered me up seeing him. You know, I always felt he was like a transparent and accessible actor, right? Like, yeah. I mean, until he went off his rocker. But, you know, kind of then there are other actors and I think it's partly through the choice of roles. So, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis, it's extraordinary to what extent he plays unpleasant characters or closed off characters or characters who are open, you know, and available. But, you know, um, like in my left foot, right, where mm. he's kind of, you know, every one of his feelings is made kind of apparent. But he's been kind of very nasty and willful and, you know, and so on because of, you mm. know, uh, um, his disability. So, so 
So his choice of roles, and my God, there will be blood. And so, yeah, like kind of, he always plays unpleasant characters. The only exception to this that I can find a little bit is in the Michael Michael Mann film uh, where he plays uh, um, that uh, Indian tracker. uh, um, I don't know. know. What about Lincoln? I don't like him in Lincoln. I, but he's not I unlikable hate, in that. Just, I hate Lincoln. <laughs> but he's not unlikable in that. He's kind of, he's supposed to be towering and powerful and all-knowing. All but, but I think that's the kind of performance that gives the haters their ammunition. Yeah. You know, because you can see every thought, you know, that's gone into every gesture. It seems like so fully put on, really, you know, mm. so... Like, you are seeing the wheels turning constantly. Well, all of this to say that that's not the way I felt about his character in this. Yes. His performance in this. I loved him. I felt he... I really believed him, and I I felt like I understood who he was, um, in a way. And um, found him natural and believable. There's a, there's a thing as well, there's a thing as well with, with Paul Thomas Anderson films where... Again, they they kind of they come with this cachet that you're expecting that everything means something and everything is significant. You must be noticing everything all the time. Mm. And there are moments in this where actually there's a kind of quotidian aspect. So, um, the the way that uh, his his company works and all the, the ladies come in making the dress and you just, you kind of get these montages of of just the work being done and uh, and there's one particular that I'm thinking of where they're having breakfast in the morning and he's happy that morning which yeah. is unusual for him and you know he's offering porridge and he's doing this that and the other and and um, there's a mood and a tone to that that actually you feel like you, you feel is very natural as opposed to being like oh what does the porridge mean yes <laughs> you know yes. it's just a general there's a, there's a more kind of general aspect which I think is not the case in the master or in There Will Be Blood, where things do feel more deliberate the whole way through. Though I think this is quite deliberate as well, you know. I yeah, mean, I don't mean accidental, but I yeah. mean there, there is less weight, I think, attached to, to certain things. Whilst, whilst I was watching it, and I, I really, truly loved it, uh, I thought, oh, this is going to put off a lot of people, because in many ways it's a film about art and artists, right? So it is kind of very fairy in that way. I mean, this is a man who's actually slightly autistic in a way. Like, he can mm. think of only one thing, you know. And, and he needs routine. And he needs routine. And any little thing throws him off. You know, and the film is wonderful about demonstrating how, how just sounds, you know, ruin his day and prevent him from working. So, but it is somebody who's enthralled to his craft, right? Like, he goes to sleep thinking about, you know, the dress he's going to make. He wakes up thinking about the dress he's going to make. He chooses his girlfriend because, you know, she's got the best posture to wear those dresses, you know. And so, like, it, it's a life that's kind of, like, wrapped up in art making, really. That's kind of, you know, what the mm-hmm. film is about, I think. Um, and then, of course, the message about the Phantom Threads is you, you see him as a person who's so obsessed with his art that he's closed himself off to life, right? And so he's basically in a dialogue with, you know, his idea of beauty, his mother, right? And a kind of a secret inner life that, you know, that is really hidden away. And I think kind of, you know, the, the, the phantom thread in a way is a metaphor for that because what he does is he puts messages, pictures, 
you know, things that are meaningful to him or messages that he wants to get conveyed to people, but he puts them in the linings of clothes. Yeah, right? where only he knows Where only are. he knows that are there, right? So actually, in a way, it's kind of like a dialogue with himself, which kind of keeps him closed off from other people. Mm. You know, and I think kind of, um, you know, so, so I think one can extrapolate, you know, with that um, and critique it, really, because... You know, if that's kind of the way that Paul Thomas Anderson or or, or actually Woodcock sees, you know, his art, it's kind of like a, a dialogue with his phantasms, with his the ghosts of his past, you know, with his ideas. It's really a kind of like a dialogue with the life, with his life, as he himself conceives it in a way that closes off everybody else. Do you think the <clears throat> film falls into cliches of the, the tortured artist the tortured artist and and the muse who suffers due to him and that sort of thing. I think I think it does, but I think the film is so interesting because it kind of turns the tables on it, mm-hmm. right? So the whole thing is about unlocking this kind of um, autism. Yeah, this him being so wrapped up in one idea and of himself. And actually, the only way that this woman who loves him can do it. By making him ill. <laughs> He's a man surrounded by women. Yes. Uh, every other character in the film, other than him, uh, every other significant character is a woman. Yes. Um, really, the only other guy is, is a doctor who shows up twice. It's not that important. Yes. Um, but, you know, there's his sister who runs his company and, and kind of knows how to handle him. Yeah, um, wonderful. And he doesn't mince words. Like, everyone kind of talks in subtext, and she will initially talking subtext and then she'll just come out and say what she means yes like she's, I can't remember exactly what it's when she wants the doctor to look at him and she's and I forget she, she, she basically says the doctor's here mm. and the subtext is get out of the room and um, Alma doesn't leave the room so she says okay I'm just going to be clear get out of the room yes <laughs> she, she does that a couple of times so there's, there's her she knows how to kind of deal with him and she's quite forthright Obviously, there's Alma, who's the, the, the love interest and, the, and the, the, the muse and the person who kind of activates him and so on. Um, every, every, everyone else who works on the dresses is a woman. Um, and also, he's making dresses for women. Yes. Like, you know that he, he does, he also can make suits and things. Like, he talks about the suit that he's made for himself yes. with his mother's lock of hair in it. So, like, he can do other stuff, but the whole focus is on making dresses for women. And then, of course, there's his mother, who... Uh, appears it, as a ghost. Appears as a ghost, and is someone who who he, he kind of deeply misses um, and tries to keep with him all the time. Uh, I, I, I wasn't a huge fan of the, the the bit where she shows up as a ghost. I must say, well, she doesn't show up as a ghost. She shows up in in a kind of fever dream that he has while he's ill. Yes, um, I love that. I I just I don't like when I had the same problem with three billboards uh, with the deer scene. I don't like when people talk to hallucinations. <laughs> I, I find it kind of hacky I don't think it's I, I think this film does it about as well as I've ever seen it and it still feels just nonsense to me I liked it because then when she comes into the room right she's a living breathing woman she's not like a figment of his imagination or a thread into his past you know she's there and she's an other and she loves him and he loves her right and so kind of you you see this act of replacement you know kind of happening kind of visually for you really as she enters the room so um i mean it might be a hackneyed idea but i i loved it well yeah so, so i think it's done as well as i've ever seen it hmm. so i guess that's it. i mean stamming with faint praise i suppose but it's, it's <laughs> um i uh but with the mother basically the mother is 
important twice where she's introduced when he meets Alma and he's showing her the photo of his mother and, and talks about uh, how he secreted this lock of hair in his in his coat so he can keep her close mm. um, and um, and then when she shows up uh, in this in this in this dream I f- it feels like it's trying to be made more important than it is I don't it's it f- I don't know. I kind of, I didn't question it. Uh, I can imagine, you know, how that would be important. Um, But I also think that the film is critiquing this idea of him being so wrapped up in the past and so connected, so threaded to his past, you know, and what he sees is arguably the only person who understood him and helped him and taught him his craft, he says, Mm. that, that he's now oblivious to his present and his future. You know, so that's, so I, that's the phantom thread. I think the, so. The phantom of his past and how poetic of you. Yeah, how <laughs> no, that's I, good, I mean, I don't know, but that's my interpretation. Right? Well, it's better than mine because I don't have one. So well done. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, no, you know, I think I think the task of the Vicky Creeps character is you know to bring him to make him present really Mm. and that's why it's so interesting that the only way that she can make him present be there with her in the way that she wants which she says is open and yeah kind Mm. of accessible but also needy that he needs her right um is 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 to poison him yeah so basically they come she poisons him once uh and then by this by the time she poisons him a second time she cooks this omelette with with poison mushrooms in front of him, and he figures out that it was her before. And and she talks about wanting him to be weak and need her, and, and to kind of put in a position where he needs to lower his defenses. Yes, and let her in. Um, and he very pointedly takes a bite of this omelette in front of her. That's this kind of okay. This is what we'll do. And then their and then their their relationship is kind of re-energized. Yes. And they're, and they're winking at each other and flirting while the doctor's there, not having a clue <laughs> that they did this deliberately. But I thought, used to, to me, that was like so romantic. Yeah. Because, no, I agree. You know, I mean, it's what weird. he's saying, it's weird that they have a relationship based on repeated attempted assassination. Yes, but that's not what it's about, <laughs> right? And actually, but but the romantic gesture in that is. You know, if you want to poison me, I'm willing to die for you. Mm. You know, and it kind of, you know, and then it goes on from there because, of course, she doesn't want to kill him. You know, uh, she just mm. wants him to need her and to, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, so they basically, she, she she's brought into his life and then the honeymoon period wears off quite quickly and, and he starts finding her quite annoying in these ways. And there's that, there's that brilliant scene which you alluded to earlier mm. where, she, where they're having breakfast and um, the sound design of her spreading butter on toast and clinking things and pouring water, the sound is is piercing and crisp mm. and it's destroying his morning. Um, and and then she poisons him when it all kind of gets a bit too much, she poisons him. And then as he recovers, he says, I love you, uh, marry me. And this kind of, it's rekindled. And then they get married and then it devolves back into annoyances and, and sniping at each other and so on. And again, it's 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 when she poisons him the second time, it's rekindled. So that they they clearly love each other, but it's it's a, it's a very weird kind of damaged sort of love that they need. That it's unhealthy, to say the least. I don't know. I mean, what do you think of the film visually? I think it's extraordinarily beautiful. As far as, far as I know, Paul Thomas Anderson is now that his own sort of live stream cinematographer. Um, I, I, I'm. 
I will double I check. That, I thought there was a cinematographer credited. I will double check. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson, director of photography, uncredited. Oh, he's, okay, he's, well, he's a writer, director, and cinematographer. So he's he's. I mean, he. It's lit and shot uh, so beautifully, and and so evocative. There's almost like this this feeling of slight fog over some of the images. Yes. The, the way that people are half in shadow and half in light. And but I, think, I think there's two things. So on the one hand, I do think it's lit like a Vermeer painting. That's who I was, the word I was searching for uh, before. It does have like this, this chiaroscuro, but it also does have like this kind of amber lighting, really. It's kind of, you know, it glows. But also I think you're right. It looks, it glows. But on the other hand, it's also slightly faded as if it was shot in old stock or, you know, you do, the, the 1950s are evoked really through kind of the images themselves, the texture of the images themselves, which look kind of slightly fading. You know, they're not as sharp as kind of you're used to now. You know, so it has like a wonderful palette, but it also has wonderful imagery. Like, you know, the scenes of the Chelsea Arts Ball, I think are just divine, really. And also the scenes when they go to Switzerland, Right, kind of, you know, the mountains. Fantastic. You know, the scene where it kind of begins to snow. It's just so beautiful, you know, in London. Um, I thought it kind of, it, it was, it's, it's glorious to look at and to kind of, you know, be immersed in. And I think, I think this is really a picture to see in the cinema because it's one of those where, you know, kind of all the slightest gestures matter. But also... Kind of, you know, the quality of the image and things like the texture of the dresses, right? Mm. You know, so kind of, you know, the, the film in a way is a fashion show as well. Like there's all these dresses, right? Um, but, you know, the kind of they're, they're, the, the, fifth, the, the fabric of these dresses evokes the 1950s. There's the silks, right? And kind of, you know, these, these, the, the, these uh, cloths that fold up kind of hard, you know, and they have like a particular texture and shine and, you know, so I think it's kind of, yeah, mm. kind of, I think it's important to see it on a big screen, partly for that, partly, you know, because the performances are all very, very understated. It is kind of the, you know, it is the type of performances where a slight kind of lift of the eyes is significant, you know, you think? Yeah. Yeah, it's certainly... Um Significant is perhaps too strong a word to put in it, but evocative, I would say. Like, it's not like a, a raising of the eyebrows necessarily means a huge deal, but it conveys uh, a kind of feeling and a tone. Um, well, you've got to be able to see it because it's yeah. meaningful. That's kind of what I was getting. Oh, well, that's, yeah, that's definitely. There is only one uh, scene in the film that I think is truly memorable uh, which is the conversation over the omelette at the end where it all kind of becomes quite plain and and um, moments of hell this whole thing of will he eat the omelette or what's he going to do and is he going to accuse him you know um, which yeah, and I think there were more moments like that in, in his last few films I think in The Master there was the um, I love The Master the interview scene which is extraordinary um and uh, and in there will be blood. Uh, more or less every conversation in there will be blood between uh, Daniel Plainview and Eli. Is is has that feeling of important kind of 
kind of gigantitude, in for lack of a real word. Um, which is not to say that that, make, that is a failing in this film. This film is, is I think, evoking something slightly different. I think this film has more of a feeling of punch drunk love. Um, it's it, it flows more. It, it feels like it's less kind of trying to be. I mean, those, those films are about big personalities clashing mm. uh, and coming into contact with each other. This film is not quite that. I I think it's about the evolution is... of a relationship. I to me, I think this is his most accessible and charming film, really. Um, though, you know, when you mentioned The Master, I saw The Master about like four times. I went down to London twice to see it. I forget whether it was in 65 or It was or 70 mil. 70 yeah. mil. You know, and actually there was just something about the tonalities of the color, you know, and the glow of the color of the 70 mil that was just so beautiful, right? Kind of. And I thought it was, there's a moment where you know, you're seeing these images and they're shot in a 50s style like this is, right? But, you know, it had like a kind of a different tonality in the master. And then I think it's Ella Fitzgerald who begins to sing, right? And it was, I, and it was just, I thought it was magic, really. Mm. And, I, and I think a little bit about this film as well. It's a film that's kind of not really driven by plots or dialogue, right? That kind of, you know, the images are almost everything, really. Mm. Uh, the image and the sound design, you know. Kind yeah, of. I think the soundtrack is fantastic. I, it was, it's more um, uh, given from what I know of Johnny Greenwood's music and from the music he um, made for There Will Be Blood. I don't know if he did the master or not, um, but uh, I expected a kind of uh, more, how to put it, wacky or uh, mm-hmm. unconventional, challenging soundtrack. But actually, it's it's it's, it's beautiful kind of piano and strings that there's such a romantic feeling to the opening act yes um, and the music really carries that and it, yes. it conveys it beautifully and I think I was, I was kind of blown away by the soundtrack I think it's just beautiful music yes I think it's beautiful use of sound you know throughout really kind of it's a film that um, makes the use of sound uh, uh, explicit yeah that draws mm. your attention to it uh, I mean, I don't think it's any particular kind of wizardry, really. So, you know, noise uh, uh, upsets him, so you hear these sounds very loudly, you know. But nonetheless, kind of it draws attention to the sound. And once, you're, once your attention is drawn to the sound in those scenes, you know, it's kept kind of throughout for the rest of the film, mm. yeah, in ways that are more subtle. So um, I thought it was beautiful. I think it's a really romantic film, and I think it's kind of oddly romantic because actually it... You know, I mean, there is something kind of really fascinating about, you know, this idea that basically you have to poison a man, you know, in order to make him pay attention to you. (laughs) Yeah, and be involved in the present and now and not kind of, you know, in the past or in the future. Yeah, You have to make him ill in order to make him open, you know, emotionally open. I think that's kind of fascinating. That is, isn't, isn't that what the film... Yeah, no, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm, I'm, I mean, for the podcast listeners, I'm just sat here kind of staring into space. I, I mean, <laughs> when it comes to uh, interpreting the film, see, I, I, at the moment, I'm just thinking about everything on the surface, right? Which I think is, you know, it's fine to appreciate the way it looks and the way it sounds and, and the, the, the performances, but uh, yeah, I do feel that I'm struggling to dig into it. But then I, I, you know, it, I'm sure it needs a second viewing. Viewing, um, but 
but, but I, I'm not sure if I uh, want to see it a second time. Oh, I definitely do. Okay. I will. Well, I will then. But. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it's beautiful. You know, I think it's beautiful. I think it's romantic. I, I kind of like, like I said, the uh, Alma character to me is like a Vermeer painting. You know, and kind of like somehow your attention is drawn to her. She's really beautiful and intelligent and and open, right? Kind of, you know, so you get the feeling that she 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 knows what she wants in general, right? But maybe not right at this moment, but she's willing to kind of, you know, go into the unknown. Yeah, if it means kind of going with whom she knows she wants, which is him. Mm. Like, kind of, you know, it's 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 kind of a very interesting... Um, it's a very interesting look and a very interesting performance, right? And you can understand completely why he becomes kind of involved with her and then besotted. And also, what I think is so interesting about the film is you can understand why the sister and her become accomplices yeah so they're all they all have their own kind of area yeah but kind of it's significant when the sister says i like her and i respect her or something like that right um very early on in their relationship uh um so i just i think it's an unusual and interesting kind of dynamic in the film you know, where you have like these really two smart and self-possessed women. It's very intelligent and kind of um, artistic heterosexual man, right? Like kind of, you know, the dynamics are all odd, like mm-hmm. odd in the sense of being unusual, you know, and I found them entrancing, actually. Mm-hmm. I think the film, uh, whether it's trying to or not is, is a different question, but I think the film doesn't avoid certain cliche of um, art, which is that the best art... He, he's, he is kind of a genius, Reynolds. This is, I mean, this is what you kind of know of his work, and he's sought out by, by royals and things mm. like this. Um, but his the film basically has this kind of suggestion that the, 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 the greatest art comes through a, a kind of tortured uh, process or a tortured person. Yes. Um, there's very little room in his world for inspiration other than I think right at the start when he when he meets Alma and takes her out for dinner and then he kind of takes her measurements and it's established that she is the perfect figure for him yes um, I think actually we're shown inspiration I'd like to disagree with that so you know we're shown inspiration I think kind of what we're not shown is joy I'm not sure we're shown inspiration either we're shown work he's always sitting there with his book Working, yes, but uh, I, I mean, you're absolutely right to point out that it, there's no joy in it. I don't think there's a moment where there's any joy in it. Um, even when, even right at the start, like I say, when I think that is that that one, you know, that that that, that meeting of of Alma, um, I think still that's that is kind of joyless once it gets down to the actual work. Um, but I, I didn't even feel. Where do you think there are? There's well, I think she's inspiration. the inspiration. You know, and her whole body is the inspiration. Her demeanor is an inspiration. He begins to dress her as soon as he meets her. And actually, and it's by dressing her that he falls in love. You know, uh, so... But yeah. apart from that, I mean, he makes dresses for other... He makes a dress... He makes two two wedding dresses. 
Yes, but that's the source of friction because actually it's through the dress that he um, expresses his love. So actually when he begins to make the wedding dress for that princess, you know, she gets jealous. Mm. Yeah, and it's all about like kind of, you know, the princess and she tries to curse her. Right, because there's a line of dialogue at some point which says you never congratulate a bride because you know you congratulate a bride you know on the dress or whatever kind of it means that the marriage won't go through mm. yeah so um, and then she does she says I wish you all the best for you exactly now. sure but that's uh, I, I think that's true but I'm talking about from the character of Reynolds um, this idea that he makes these great works I don't think you I think the film only talks about him as as a as a kind of tortured, you know, kind of negative well, his, way, well, as, a, as opposed to positive. Uh, well, he's definitely tortured. I think there's no question about that, right? Like, you know, he's a screwed up person and kind of, you know, that's the interesting dynamic of um, the film. But he is, and it's got this weird, but the film sees him as an artist. There's no question. He's not a dressmaker. He's an artist and he's an artist to the point where, you know, some people don't deserve to wear his dresses and he rips them off. Yeah. <laughs> right? So, which are, they're, they're all kind of cliche-ish, actually. That is kind of cliche-ish, I would say. I've seen that before. Um, but, but I don't have a problem with that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I, I'm, I'm not sure I have a problem with anything that I'm kind of picking up on as a cliche. And I think the film is actually... Uh, Kind of conversant with it. I mean, this is a, this is a type of film that has a long history. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the idea, the idea of this, this the tortured artist kind of thing, which is why I kind of picked up on and asked you whether what you made of that. But um, I don't think I have a problem with any of that. But I, I do think that I do think it, it falls into a trap every now and again. I don't know. Also, I mean, or, or rather, rather, rather does rather kind of uses a cliche and then doesn't do enough with it I don't know I mean I think it's it's quite I think it's quite an original film to make a love story out of or to or to make an expression of love an attempt at poisoning is to me quite original hmm. yeah. I mean it might not be someone will, you know will probably <laughs> kind of come back to us and say no this 18th century novel is the plot but you know it felt original to me uh, and I enjoyed watching it and actually I think so several things I think that to me the performances are extraordinary you know and though I try to avoid talk on the films you know I couldn't help but uh, hear on Facebook people just bitching and bitching and bitching and bitching and bitching about kind of um uh, um Day Lewis Day Lewis you know, so everybody was praising Leslie Manville, but kind of, you know, really snarky about Day Lewis. I think he's fantastic. I think he's fantastic. I think she's fantastic. And I think uh, Alma, Vicky Pratt, is, you know, a big new star. I, I don't remember seeing her before. Um, I don't know whether she's German or Austrian or Dutch. Uh, uh, but, you know, she was beautiful to look at. Just kind of a stunning presence, really. And that, alongside, you know, the cinematography and the images and the sounds, I just thought it was entrancing. She's and I from think Luxembourg. She's from Luxembourg. Um, and I think, you know, people who can't appreciate it don't know how to appreciate cinema. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they can fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
What about the idea? There's something that struck me, which I didn't really make that very much of. But um, uh, there are there are two moments where women are reduced to numbers. There's there's when uh, when he takes Alma out for dinner and then uh, takes her measurements. There's just this list of numbers. Like, I I I thought there were three measurements. You know, was it no. a, uh, chest, waist, and hips, whatever? Um, but no, but this is just this litany of numbers that he starts reading off her. Yes. Uh, and um, and Leslie Manville's character just, just writes them down, and not even not even saying like this is her arm, this is her leg, whatever. It's just it's just a list of numbers. Apparently, they all just know what they are. No. They're, they're so professional at this. So there's that, and then there's the um, the fashion show, uh, which takes place in the house, uh, where it's just you know. Like, they send down the catwalk, um, wearing dresses. The models are, and, and but they all hold numbers. Yeah, uh, the number, number eleven, model. number five, number yeah. six, whatever. And um, and again, it's just like that. The idea that there's no identity to these women. They are what they're wearing. They are they are what they're made of and what they're dressed as. Yes, that that also was interesting, I suppose, because usually they would be given a number, but the dress would be announced, or you know, it was mm. quite common to give dresses names like. Right. You know, and actually, the very, the very very beginning of the film starts off with uh, with uh, Alma uh, talking to someone who you don't uh, see for a long time, and uh, she says something like, um, I, "I've given him what he wants." Something like this: "I've I've given him what he wants." And what's that? Every piece of me, you know, pieces yes. of it, as opposed to as opposed to me. Yes, it's she refers to herself as a series of parts. As opposed to a person. Yes. Um, which, you know, and again, this is something that I was kind of, I guess, looking for. And I don't... I always find this. That I kind of notice something and then I can't make it add up to anything. Well, I mean, you know, sometimes you just have to mm. see things again. But um, let's at least encourage people, you know, uh, to go see it. Yeah. Mm. I think... Uh, um, to me, it's one of his very greatest films. One of his most beautiful, and actually one of his most challenging, because, you know, I think kind of the meaning and the beauty come from the tone, the images, and the sounds. You know, it's kind of, it requires a more um, skilled viewer than... I am. No, then, yeah. then, then. Um, it also, I think, takes someone who's conversant with, with films of this nature, maybe old British films or um, films about fashion and films about the, the films that, that uh, have a kind of tortured genius uh, aspect to them, which I think are no, not films that I feel particularly uh, conversant with. Well, you mentioned Tortured Genius and you just, like, put off yeah. like, half the audience, really. <laughs> well, yeah, no, yeah. I, I, that's, um, because I think it's, it, you know, it, it's very easy. Yeah, it sounds very dismissive, doesn't it? Oh, it's a Tortured Genius film. But, like, no, it actually, it's trying to... I mean, it's telling an interesting story and, and these are interesting characters. Like, whether he's a Tortured Genius or not, like, it, it, is, it is more than uh, whatever cliches you can kind of pick out of it. Mm. Um the thing about um, Paul Thomas Anderson films is that I normally half like them, you know, like kind of, I find them intriguing or experimental or like boogie nights and so on. Um, and then, uh, you know, for example, like Inherent Vice, like you kind of forget them really. Like I the, forgot that, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't, they, you know, so I think there are moments, like Punch Drunk Love, I love, 
you know, uh, there are shots in Boogie Nights. Uh, I did love The Master, actually. Um, the Master, I just remember coming out and thinking that he's like, he's made the great American novel. Like yeah. People are always talking about uh, The Great Gatsby. And how do you put that on film? It's like, no, he's done it. He's yeah. made The Great American Novel on film somehow. Yeah, I, th- I, I certainly thought so. Um, as I said, I saw that four times. So that's definitely stayed with me. Um, you know, so, so, but I think this is his most accessible and beautiful film, really. I kind of. I'd have to see Punch Drunk Love again because I think that in, in, in that, in those, if, you, if you're talking about it as accessible, I think that might rifle it. Right. Um, and also, I mean, that's like, that's, uh, it's quite brief, Punch Drunk Love. I remember it being 90, maybe 100 minutes long at most. Um, and it's, it has this, it's it's certainly bizarre and, and kind of off kilter, but it's it's also kind of light, um, uh, and I think you can get attached to the characters quite easily in a way that you can with this as well. I think, yes. I think the characters in There'll Be Blood uh, and uh, the Master are harder to connect to, and I think that's probably what you're talking about. I think yes. yeah, how 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 easily you can kind of get along with them or feel like you understand them. Yes, I don't know. I mean. Um... That's certainly the way I feel, anyway. I, I, I thought it was very beautiful, and I love, I love the people in them. I love the Leslie Manville character. I, you know, I couldn't stop looking at Alma, you know, and Daniel Day-Lewis, I think it's just great. So, uh, you know, that, in this world, with this theme, is something that I just found, like, really beautiful. Film's dedicated to Jonathan Demme. Right. Which you would have known if you'd stuck around to the end of the credits. Yes. I'm old and I've you know, got to go to the toilet now for three hours. <laughs> Not three hours. No, but... Uh, it's... Um, how long is it? It must be about two hours. Two hours ten. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, I feel like we probably should see it again. I think we've definitely got to get my brother on because I know he's, he's bursting to talk about it and I'm sure I've let him down very badly by not making much of it right now. But, I mean, uh, I guess without... I didn't want to come across too negative. Like, I had a really good time watching it. And I think you're absolutely right. That it is, if not his most accessible film, one of them. Mm. Um, and, and he, I mean, it is extraordinarily beautiful to look at. And it is it is beguiling. Mm. It's got a it, it's got a beautiful kind of flow and feeling to it. Um, and, and it's, and it's so it's well worth it. Sorry? It's also slightly twisted. Yeah. So the combination of guiling, twisted, you know, performances, yeah. it's it's a very intriguing film. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's beautifully evocative and, and, and well worth watching. I don't think I've really felt anything for the character. I mean, if it's if it's really meant to be a romance, or, or as I say, really meant to be a romance, if it's meant to be a romance in, as much as you have suggested, then I, for me it's a kind of failure because I just didn't really feel anything. I didn't feel like when, when they kind of figure out at the end of the film... You know what their relationship is and how to be happy. I didn't feel anything for them really. Um, I don't know about you. Well, I don't know about feel like I. I mean, I felt throughout the film as you heard. I'm sure you know because I thought it was unexpectedly funny. I, you know, it's the yeah. the humor is quite black, but you know, I loved it. You know, and the love story is quite unusual. You know, but I'm a sucker for people who are recessive, you know, and who are trying to communicate and can't find a way and somehow, 
you know, a way is bridged, right? Which I think is what happens in this film, you know, and I think it's also kind of an interesting message that we're not all alike, you know. I, I agree with that. I mean, I, I also really enjoy stories about people who uh, deeply want to communicate and don't know how or trying to point out. And, and maybe that's why I am um, feel slightly let down or disappointed by this because I think it is absolutely about that. And then when it kind of happens, I didn't feel very much. Um, whereas normally I love that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Though, yes, I mean, the thing about inciting feeling, yeah. you know, is, I mean, um, I just think, I just think some filmmakers are actually not, uh, that's not what they set out to do, mm. you know, and, and, I, and because of that, they don't do it, you know. So on the one hand, somebody like Almodovar can take any material and make people feel, mm. you know, and then I think... Thomas Anderson is not that type of filmmaker. I mean, he gets you to think, you know, and he sets a tone and he sets a mood and, you know, he might be seductive, you know, but this sense of feeling instantly accessible pleasures throughout, I don't think that's, you know, yeah, you need I, to... That's, that's fair. I think, I mean, yeah, well, in that case, then it's, it's not fair to call it a failure, but it's just fair to call it not uh, entirely my style. Um, fair enough. Which is fair enough. I also, but um, just one last thing, you talked about the humour, and I love the use of the word fuck. Yes. And they say fuck about ten times, and it's, it's all Danny Day Lewis's character um, getting frustrated. And what I love about that is it's there's an element of there's always something slightly kooky going on in um, in Paul Thomas Anderson's film. So there's that point in There Will Be Blood, which is set in the early 1900s in the kind of Wild West. Um, there's that point where. Uh, the brother character comes in and he introduces himself. He says, I'm your brother from another mother. And, it, and although it makes sense, it's also a silly thing to put in there. There's that bit in um, Punch Drunk Love where, uh, which is also a film thinking about it, about a, a, a guy, a male character who's kind of slightly nuts, who's just surrounded by women. I have to, I have to watch that film again. Um, but there's that point in where uh, he says, things are very food. And he, and he says, well, things are very good. And that apparently came from a typo. Paul Thomas Anderson accidentally wrote food in the script and then thought, well, I'll keep it there. There's always something like that going on. And I think the use of the word fuck in Phantom Thread is the same sort of thing because it's really out of place. Although it's not like people never said fuck. Of course they said fuck back then. It's not a new swear word. But you, ne but it's so unusual to hear it in a film like this. Yes. Uh, and, it's, um, and it's kind of bracing and it's edgy and it's funny. Um, to hear just, you know, he says forgot. And then there's... And then, uh, he wants a doctor to fuck off and he says fuck off and um, uh, Alma then says I think it's clear he wants you to fuck off yes <laughs> you know, it's funny and um, and it's it's got a great it's, uh, there's a real command of tone yes um, nothing feels out of place yes that. that's a wonderful way of putting it actually um, and we should end here yes I, I think it's reasonable to suggest that we're probably going to come back on it. Yes. And, and it give it another go. And like I said, yes. I need to get my With brother involved. With guests. Yeah, we've got, I've got to get my brother involved. I mean, my brother's not nobody. He, he was also taught film uh, by Jose, as I was. And uh, and he's been to the London Film School. He's graduated from there not long ago. Yes. So, I mean, you know, he knows his stuff. All right. Let's end here. Uh, um... uh, we're, we're on um, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, eavesdropping at the movies. We're on Facebook, eavesdropping at the movies. We're on Twitter, at eavesdropmovies. You know, drop us a line. We've been getting compliments left, right, and centre. But to be fair, they're all going to Jose personally, and I don't see any of them. Yes. So yes, you know, don't 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 send make, me. Don't make him a Cinderfella. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jose, Jose's on Twitter at Jose Arroyo sixteen. 
and I'm uh, Michael underscore J underscore Glass. And, you know, I'm just saying, like, send me a few compliments, please, because Jose's getting <laughs> and it makes me feel left out. Oh, Yeah. Oh, poor baby. I know, I'm going to start poisoning people. <laughs> <laughs> might get you somewhere. <laughs> might, might, might get you love. <laughs> All right. Oh, Let's end it I'm here. Sorry. Goodbye. <laughs>